0: We just sang that the Lord is our salvation. And uh, I really think we need to pray, call upon his name before we dive in this morning. God, we, we cry out to you. God, that, that line that, that my hope is hidden in the Lord. God, we, we need hope in this world. And we can't find it in anything that this world offers. But in you there is a hope that is sure, that is steadfast, that is reliable, that allows us to put our feet down and move forward even when everything else is unknown and uncertain. God, you flower every promise of your word. And God, for that reason, in a world that isn't often thankful, we have every reason to give you thanksgiving. And so today, God, I pray that the people who've gathered in this room, the people who are listening over the live stream online, God, that today would be the day that there's a renewed sense of real and deep thanksgiving because of all that we have through the gift of Christ. We'll give you all the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God's people are to be a thankful people. And we read about this in Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to ask you to go ahead and turn there. If you don't know where Isaiah is, there's no embarrassment in using the table of contents in your phone or your Bible. Or just split your Bible in half and you'll probably find yourself in the Psalms. And then just flip over a few books and you'll be there in Isaiah. It's kind of like the next big book Psalms, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, and then go 12 more chapters and you are where we will be in just a moment. I want to set the context for this passage today. Isaiah is a prophet. Uh, He's one of the major prophets and he writes both about God's judgment and God's salvation. Uh, In chapter 3 we read these words, verse 8, Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. You see, Judah had once been a mighty nation. Under King David, their their borders were massive and they had great military might. But in these days that Isaiah is speaking, David is off the scene, he has died, and Judah, which had once been a mighty nation, is now on the decline, and Isaiah foresees her downfall. No no trust in Assyria is going to work. No foreign alliances will be able to rescue Judah. God, in fact, will use, surprisingly, Babylon to judge Judah and Jerusalem because they have rejected the Lord. The Lord's people have rejected the Lord. But Isaiah also says, in this, this middle in the middle of this section of doom and gloom and judgment and darkness, he says, look, a day is coming... When a remnant of God's people will be rescued by their Lord and King. So among those who have the name God's people, there are some who are actually God's people. They're really trusting in God. They're really looking for the Son of God to come. And they will, in fact, be rescued. There will be a people of God who will be forgiven and they will live forever in Zion with their king. This king is, told about, is prophesied in chapter 9 verse 7 there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. This is speaking of the kingdom of God that can't be conquered or toppled. It will never fail. The people who trust in this King and look for God's salvation will not rely on other governments for protection or for hope, but they will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. And because Jesus has come, that day that Isaiah predicted has come. Now is the day of salvation, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. There's a highway into the presence of God for those who will trust in Jesus. He has paved a highway through His bloody death, out of the wrath of God, and into His forever presence. And so the choices are clear in Isaiah as they are in the Gospels. You either trust in Jesus, the promised Son of God, and get on the highway to heaven... Or you refuse Jesus and you will face God's judgment. Those are the options. So as we look at verse 12, we've got to keep in mind that what Isaiah is saying, out of all this judgment and condemnation, there's going to be a thankful people in the end. There's going to be a day of salvation that will come. And it will come when God sends His Son. And so what Isaiah is envisioning is a people who recognize there was judgment, there was condemnation, there was death, and somehow God has delivered us from that, and He's done it through His Son. And this, this um, text in chapter 12 is really functions almost like a song or a psalm of God's thankful people. And the question this morning is, who are those people? We are to be those people, because the Son who has been promised has come. Isaiah envisions a people so thankful for the Lord's salvation that this is the music of their hearts and of our hearts, and so... If you found your spot in Isaiah 12, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God together? All six verses. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And on that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, make them remember that His name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for He has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Rejoice and shout for joy, you inhabitants of Zion." For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. You may be seated. I want to show you two things. Two things in this passage. First, because the day of God's salvation has come through Jesus, the first thing we see in verses 1-3 through three is that we must delight in the Lord who is our salvation. We must delight in the Lord who is our salvation. And the second thing we'll see momentarily is we must declare and display God's salvation first in verses 1 through 3 we must delight in the Lord who is our salvation in verses 2 and 3 we find the word salvation three times in two verses it's the same word it's Yeshua you know the word Jesus it, it is Joshua Yeshua Jesus salvation 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 it is the the name that is given to our Savior but what is salvation we talk about salvation all the time in church, don't we? You need to get saved. You need to trust Jesus. You need to be saved. Saved from what? What is salvation? Salvation is rescue or deliverance from an enemy or imminent danger or a calamity. And because people, all people, refused God, rejected God, said we don't need God, I want to be my own God and go my own way because we resisted and rejected our Creator that brings condemnation, death, and judgment. And so, the salvation that Isaiah envisions is not just being rescued out of captivity in Babylon, it's a greater rescue, it's being rescued from the enemies of sin, death, hell, and the grave. Without Jesus, there is no salvation, but Jesus, praise God, is salvation. Because of Jesus, we've been delivered, do you see it in verse 1? From the anger of God. Isaiah uses two words to describe the anger of God in verse 1. The first word means heavy breathing, and the second word means nostril. Now, God doesn't have nostrils. doesn't have a nose. But if God had a nose, the picture of His anger would be nostril-flaring anger. You ever been that mad? Referee makes a boneheaded call that changes the outcome of the game, and everybody in the stands knows it, even the, even the Michigan fans that, that saw that catch that Tech made in the end zone? I mean, that's only been 10 years ago now, and I'm not, not still upset about it. I mean, but have you ever been that kind of angry, just red-faced, nostrils flaring, you've been done wrong? The reality is, church, we've all had those moments in our life. But the Bible tells us that when humans get angry, it's almost never righteous anger. Our anger is almost always misguided. It's almost always self-righteous, misinformed. But God knows everything, and His anger is always right. God gave us every reason to acknowledge Him and love Him, but left to ourselves, we don't the Bible tells us that God hates our rebellion. He hates our idolatry. As David writes, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil can dwell with you. The boastful will not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do injustice. Now that's probably not on your top five list of inspirational verses on your quote board or your mirror, but it's true. Unless you run to the holy God and king and maker of the universe, you are subject to His wrath, His anger. Verse 1 is clear. We deserve the wrath of God. But verse 1 continues, and I'm so thankful that it does. Verse 1 ends by saying, you comfort me. That somehow God turned away His wrath. The very God who is right to be anger angry toward our sin, made a way for His anger to be turned away, and He did it by sending the Son of God to wrap Himself in our humanity and to serve Him perfectly so that His perfect life could count in our place and His atoning death could absorb the wrath of God so that we could know His life evermore. Isaiah tells us this would happen in Isaiah 53. All of us like sheep have gone astray each of us is turned to His own way, but the Lord calls the wrongdoing of us to fall on him. I've shared this illustration multiple times, but I, whenever I think about the wrath of the wrath of God, I, I have to share it because it's, just, it's such a compelling illustration of God's wrath. You say, was I really subject to God's wrath? Was it really that bad? Yes, it was coming for you in the mid. 1800s there was the gold rush in our country and people were moving from east to go out west in search of gold and they they took all their possessions horse and buggy and food and family and they all went out west in search of treasure and during the gold rush there was a prairie fire you know what a prairie fire is it's it's cornfields and it's dry conditions and a fire gets ignited and the wind blows the fire from west to east because the wind in our country goes from west to east and there's a wall of fire and there's a husband and his family and all he sees is fire and smoke and death on the way. There's no way he was outrunning that wind, so what did he do? He did the only thing he could do. He turned around and walked 50, 50 paces behind his horse and buggy and he took his flint and he lit a fire in the dry cornfield behind him. And the fire moved from west to east just as rapidly as the fire was coming. And as the fire was going that direction, he waited just long enough for that field to burn out and for it to cool down. And he pulled the horse and the buggy and his family and his food and his possessions and all his hope and all his future onto that field that had just burned out. And they stood there and they watched and they waited. And as the fire came closer, When it got to the field that had already been burned out, there was no fuel left for the fire to burn. The wrath of God burns hot against sin, but there is one place in all the world where you are safe, and it is in Jesus Christ where every drop of fuel for the wrath of God has already been extinguished because He covered your sin with His blood. And if you, this morning, don't know that your sins are forgiven and that the wrath of God has been removed from your life, then let me encourage you, like that husband who only had one hope for his family, stop trying to figure out how to manipulate God and con God and make God believe that you're better than you are. And just say, God, I'm a filthy, dirty, rotten scoundrel. I want my way. I insist on my way. I'm arrogant. I try to create my own joy, and I end up desperate, and I'm sick of it, and I want to run to Jesus where the wrath of God is extinguished so I can have joy and purpose and meaning in life evermore. Stop it. Stop trying to play games with God and give your life to Christ, and know joy unspeakable. Run away from the wrath of God and into, do you see it in verse 1? You comfort me. The very God who you rejected will comfort you if you run to His Son. And let me tell you, in a world of pandemic and death and despair, if you know that you'll face eternity without having to face the wrath of God, you've gone from wrath to comfort. You've gone from anger to embrace. You've gone from cut off from the presence of God to being a child of God. This North Roanoke is why we give thanks to the Lord. In verse 1, the the word is singular. The word you is singular. We, as one person of God, are to be so united in our awareness of God's wrath that we deserved, and so grateful for the deliverance that we have through Jesus that in unison, like one person, we give thanks to the Lord. Yes, we are different in all sorts of ways, but we are the same in this way. We all deserve the wrath of God, and through Christ we can be saved and know His comfort. Verse 2 begins and ends with an affirmation. That God the Lord is my salvation. The word behold there is in verse 2. It's a truth that we don't just state, we don't just think about it. It's a truth that we behold. We must look intently at the reality that God is our salvation. Our good deeds can't save us, our smarts can't save us, our strengths can't save us, the business that we built can't save us, nothing that we bring to the table can save us. The Lord is our salvation. And because that is true, because you know what, if it was up to me, I would be lost. Just as soon as I got something going right, I'd get confident and arrogant and I'd mess it all up over again. Even if it was possible for me to save myself, I'd lose it just as soon as I had it. But it's not up to me, it's up to God. And God sent His Son. And if we will turn from our sin and trust in Him, the Lord is our salvation. We can trust, therefore, verse 2, and not be afraid. We live in a world that is terrified of everything, we don't have to be afraid. Because our confidence is not in ourselves, it's not in our stock portfolio, it's not in the trophies that we have in our case that don't mean anything anymore because I'm 42 and I'm aging and I need to throw them away because they just remind me that I used to have some athletic ability. My confidence isn't in any of those things. My confidence is in Christ crucified and He didn't stay dead, but on the third day, according to the promise of Scripture, He conquered the grave and He's returning and He's going to raise me up. He is my salvation. But you know, we forget this truth. We come and sing it on Sunday and by Tuesday we are are defeated in our lives and we're struggling to have joy because we are forgetting God. We get so wrapped up in the immediate. We get so wrapped up in the temporary. And neglect what is eternal, but the only song that will stand the test of time and that will feed your soul is this: the Lord God, by giving me Himself through Christ, is my strength and my song. Do you see that in verse 2? He is my strength and my song. What is that? What does that mean? It means he's my pride and my joy, he's my boast. He's my delight. He's my answer in trouble. He's my shield. He's my defender, my rock, my redeemer. He's the reason that I live and that I sing. And here's what I've discovered in my life. Whatever I'm trusting is the music inside my life. Everybody's got a song that's playing in your head and your heart. And I don't mean necessarily a literal tune from the radio. But everybody is living for something, and that is your strength in your song. Are Are you living for your retirement? Are you living for your grandchildren? Are you living for your husband or your wife or your kids or the next house or the next promotion? What are you living for? That's the music of your life. And there's only one song that will give your heart sustaining strength. It's not a new career. It's not a promotion. It's not a child. It's not the praise of man. None of those things can sustain your soul in a wicked world. What is the inner music of your life this morning? Is it that the Lord is my salvation? In the Old Testament, one of the pinnacle pictures of the deliverance or the salvation of God is the rescue of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea. You remember that? God brings His people out of slavery through the Red Sea, and Moses sings a song in chapter 15, verse 2, and he says, The Lord is my strength and my song, but Isaiah is envisioning a greater deliverance. Not through the Red Sea on dry land, but out of sin and despair and guilt and judgment and the wrath of God into God's salvation. Peter describes this salvation in this way. We rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, listen to this, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And a God, when God saves a soul, He never loses it. When God saves your soul, do you see verse 3? He quenches your spiritual thirst. I love verse 3. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Did you all know that water is necessary to live? Some of you thought it was coffee, but it's actually the water in the coffee that, that keeps your life sustained. Coffee is a diuretic, by the way, so you have to drink a lot of coffee to compensate for the coffee that you drink. It doesn't, doesn't really work very well. But water, water is very important for physical life, as in like if you don't drink water long enough, you're going to die. And, and the analogy is clear. As physical water is necessary for physical life, Jesus is necessary for spiritual life. He is Life everlasting. He's a wellspring of water that nourishes our souls. The water of this world, drugs, alcohol, a great song, a wonderful meal, a great honeymoon, times 10 or 12, keep having honeymoons, husbands and wives. Even a moving worship service. These are all, well, some of these things are great things and some of these things are not so great things, but the water of this world, if it's what is feeding us and not that Jesus is our salvation, what we'll discover is all these lesser things have a shelf life. They have a sell by date, an expiration date. You know what I'm talking about, right? I used to, my first real job, other than mowing grass, was working at Foodline. And every night I would close. And after cleaning the men's and women's rooms, I would come out and I would rotate the stock. You know what that is, right? You would bring the, the bread that's going to have to sell by tomorrow. You got to put that out front because you want people to buy that bread and not the fresh bread that you actually have on the shelf. And so all of you know the secret, right? Managers all over Roanoke are driving. I'm driving them crazy right now. Sorry to my friend Rob and everybody else who works in a grocery store. But if you want a fresh loaf of bread, it's probably not on the front of the shelf, right? You got to go to the back. Like you get milk. Right? Man, I... My son is not going to drink a gallon of milk by tomorrow. Well, go to the back and you'll have a gallon of milk that's going to last you a week, right? But at the end of the day, that bread is going to become stale and that milk is going to sour. But Jesus never does. He is living water. He has no expiration date. He doesn't save you just for a moment of euphoria, but for steady endurance through every trial. Jesus, you remember the the woman at the well in chapter 4? He goes to the well and he asks this Samaritan woman for water and she's like, what are you doing asking me for water? And he's like, well actually, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water. Because everybody who drinks of this water right here in this well, they're going to be thirsty in a hot minute. But whoever drinks of the water that I'll give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give Him will become a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Some of you this morning who are in this room are still trying to satisfy yourself with water that goes stale. You ever gotten plastic water, you left in your garage so long, you finally crack it open, it tastes like plastic? It's like, ugh, it's nasty. It's not Jesus. When you trust in Jesus... You'll encounter trial, you'll encounter tribulation, you'll encounter trouble, and the answer to is, a, is to afresh say, God, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of a Savior, thank you that you have saved me, that your wrath has been absorbed by your Son, and that He gives me life, and to afresh commit your life to Him, and let Jesus water your soul. When the world tempts us to look inward, instead we run to the gospel and look up to Jesus. We reflect on who He is and what He's done and the amazing love that He's shown and the sacrifice that He's made, and we find afresh that He alone is the wellspring that never runs dry. So I've got to ask you this morning, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Jesus stands ready to quench your thirst and when Jesus really quenches your thirst you will want to live in the second half of this song when Jesus really does for you what he's promised to do if you will turn from your sin and trust in him then you're going to live the rest of your life in verses four through six because he is that wellspring what do we do with it it's not just for us It is for those who don't yet know. Look at verses 4 through 6. We find we must declare and demonstrate that God saves. In verses 1 through 3, it's about you, the people of God, who are already the people of God. But in verses 4 through 6, we are sent out into a world that doesn't know Him. Why? Because salvation is always personal, but it is never private. I got to be honest with you, I don't understand churches that don't care about lost people. I don't understand why churches want to get together and worship and sing about the amazing things that God has done and not then go tell people about it. The reason He has saved us is to send us into a world that needs to know that Jesus is the water they're looking for. Notice the commands in these verses. In that day of salvation, a day we are living in because Jesus has come. These are things we will say. They are commands, not options, we are commanded to say these things, not only for us to give thanks, but we announce to the world, do you see it in verse 4, that they too must be thankful to God. We announce to the world that they must call on His name. We make known His deeds among the peoples, not just people that are like us or look like us, but all kinds of people all over the world. We announce that He is God alone and that we are not. God has saved us through the message of the gospel to send us with the message Of the gospel. God allows us to drink of the fountain that is Jesus so that we can tell others where water is found. One commentator says this the passion of all of God's people is that the goodness of God would be made known to all, that all may join the worship of God. So in a world of arrogant boasting, in a world where everybody's focused on themselves, look what we are commanded to do. We command the world not to call on their name or to make much of their name, but to call on His name. The name of God represents all that He is. All His power, His authority, His eternality, His holiness, everything. When we call on the name of the Lord, we lay down our need for someone else to make much of us and we put all of our hope in God alone. Calling on the name of the Lord indicates a personal relationship. You call someone by name because they invite you to know them by name. Hello, my name is... God invites you to call on His name and to know Him and to belong to Him and to be His child. When we call upon the name of the Lord, we recognize our dependence upon Him and we gladly entrust ourselves to Him. Last night, my, my son was here on Saturday night and heard this message. And, and my son, y'all can pray for my son. Uh, he, he listens really well and he's got me for his dad. And uh, we were praying before he went to bed. He said, Dad, I, I haven't had a chance to tell somebody about Jesus yet. Well, I get to do that one day. Because I want to do that so bad. And I said, Son, if, if Jesus doesn't come back soon, you're going to get that chance, I promise you. No matter what it takes, I'm going to give you that opportunity. And then he said, Dad, you're the best dad. And then he paused a second and he goes, Well, that's not true. <laughs> God's the best dad. And I'm so thankful that I'm his child. Even a nine-year-old boy can be saved by calling on the name of the Lord. Joel told us this day would come. He said it's going to come about in that day that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter and Paul both repeat this verse saying, This has been fulfilled because Jesus has come and the Spirit has descended, so salvation is available. God sent His Son to save. And He gave us His Holy Spirit so that we would go with the message that God saves And if we are the people of verses 1 through 3, if we are thankful for the Lord, then we will be the people of 4 through 6, living on mission with God, telling our neighbors they must repent and believe and call on the name of the Lord, for He has done great things. Do you see that? Isaiah continues, We command them to make known His incredible deeds and especially what He's accomplished through the cross, paying for our sin, absorbing the wrath of God on the cross, giving us the righteousness of God and His resurrection, and we make them remember that the name of the Lord is exalted. Now this is important. Make them remember the Lord's name is exalted. Take note. Write it down. And here's, here's a concern that I have with Christianity in the last 75 years. We have made salvation more about us than it is about God. If you, if you pray this prayer, if you walk this aisle, if you get dunked, if you do this thing, then God will love you and you'll be saved and it'll be amazing and we forget the rest of the story, which is God saved you to make much of Him. Your salvation is not first about you, it's first about God. And praise God, you get saved in the middle, and it's great, and you get water for your soul, but the water for your soul is not so you'd walk around and be happy all the time, period. It's so that you would make much of God in His name. He's the one who is exalted. He's the one who is mighty, who is king, who is conqueror, who is redeemer, who is creator, who is Lord. There is no other name above or beside His name. And the reason that we needed to be saved in the first place is because we disregarded His name. We profaned His name. We didn't care about His name. We ignored His name. We ran from Him in our sin. And God, like like Adam and Eve in the garden, He came and found us where we were. And sent His Son as a sacrifice to cleanse us from our sin and cover us till He comes again. God made a way to forgive us and embrace us through His Son so that we could declare the greatness of His name. Does your life make others take notice of the exalted name of the Lord? Those who spend the remainder of their lives, those who are saved rather, spend the remainder of their lives making much of the name they had previously ignored. In verse 5, we see that God's people not only announce the information of the gospel, but they praise the God of the gospel. We are commanded to make music because God has done glorious things. Did you notice that command was given to all people, not just the people holding a microphone? Now, you're thankful that I'm not holding a microphone when we're singing. I can assure you of that, but I'm still commanded to sing not not just Jesse not just Paul not just the people on the platform not just on Sunday morning but the people of God should be a singing people why because he's done glorious or excellent things things that are jaw dropping that are so stunning that Isaiah in chapter 53 when he talks about the crucifixion of Jesus says who can believe it what God has done but if you know Jesus you know what he's done because you know you're a sinner You know what He's delivered you from. You know what you've deserved and you know that it's true not only because there are ideas written down in the book called the Bible, but because those truths have become real in your life. You know that you're a child of God because you've got the witness of the Holy Spirit and you find that what you truly delight in is that my sins are forgiven and I belong to God. The great things that God has done for us are the fuel and the focus of our singing. Do you see that in verse 5? I love verse 5. It puts singing and mission together. Why do we sing? Why, why down through the ages do, do military, why, why do soldiers sing together? Because they've got to hang together for the mission that's in front of them. Why do we sing together? Yes, to glorify God. Yes, to edify the church. But also to remind ourselves why we're together in the first place. So that we can go and let this be known throughout the earth. Do you see that in verse 5? In other words, music and mission hang together To do music to the glory of God, you've got to always have the mission of God in mind. And to be equipped for the mission of God, you've got to be a people that sings about the glorious deeds that God has done. Then in verse 6, We are commanded to rejoice and shout for joy because we dwell where God dwells. That's salvation, church, is to be with God. Sin separated us from the presence of God. Jesus came, the great God-man, God in the flesh, to bridge the gap between man and God so that we could be in His presence. We saw in the book of Hebrews that we are already citizens of the heavenly Mount Zion if we've trusted in Christ. He is in our midst. Yes, He is the Holy One of Israel, but if you trust in Jesus, He will not be hidden to you. Yes, He is distinct. There is no other God like Him, but He will not be distant. To those who humble themselves. To those who are broken over their sin and pride and selfishness. We have the privilege of knowing the presence of God. And when we know the presence of God with us and for us. Church that is a reason to shout for joy. Do you see that? Verse 6. We are commanded to shout and to rejoice. Do you know what those words mean in the Hebrew? Shout and rejoice. They mean to shout and rejoice now, that might sound funny but I've preached sermons before where the Bible says to shout and one time a, a lady came up to me and said well my translation didn't say shout and I, I'm not much of a shouter do you realize what you were faced with Before Jesus came? Do do you realize what the scoreboard looked like at the end of the fourth quarter? You didn't have the ball. You didn't have a prayer. And suddenly God came down and won the victory for you. no greater contest, no greater consequence. Why not shout? He has done great things. We lost the presence of God because of our sin, and Jesus came back, The Holy One of Israel wrapped Himself in our humanity and died for us to conquer our sin so that we could know Him and be a part of His heavenly city now and forever when He returns. And when He returns, let me assure you, you're going to shout. One way or the other you're going to shout. You're going to shout for victory or shout because you've been self-deceived for a long time. And if you don't see what God has delivered you from, and sometimes I just want to make you go outside and shout glory to God in a world that's in full crisis mode, meltdown mode, politically, medically, economically, everything that's going on, I have a sure hope that I've been delivered from the wrath of God into the presence of God. Glory to God. He's done great things. There's nowhere else in the world that has that message. And what the world needs right now is a church that's not apologizing, that we've got joy, that we know the God who did great things. Joel 2.32, the prophet continues, not only everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but then he tells us those who are being saved, are, it's like they're escaping. Any of you feel like you just need to escape this world? Listen to what he says. On Mount Zion in in Jerusalem, speaking of the heavenly dwelling of God, there will be those who escape, just as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Have you escaped the defeat that comes from relying on yourself and trying to make your own way in the world? If you haven't escaped into the presence of God, that is a wellspring of water welling up to feed your soul day by day, let today be the day that the Lord is your salvation. And you can shout it and you can sing it and you can declare it. I'm here to tell you this morning, God has done great things for you through His Son. All that remains is for you to repent and believe. If you don't know that you know Him, let, the day, let today be the day of your salvation. Would you, would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank You that Jesus saves We're going to declare it now in song that the Lord is our salvation. We're going to declare, God, we have declared it in song that You are our salvation. And God, now we're going to declare that You have done great things. God, You have done glorious things that lead us to sing. But God, You tell us in verses 1-3, through the singing starts when we're delivered from Your wrath and into Your comforting salvation. So God, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know christ let today be the day they turn from themselves and their sin and they leave the land of death and destruction and enter into life everlasting so that they can join the team and declare forever that the lord's name is exalted and god if there's any others here who need to join a church who, who need to get on the team and say, I'm all in for the mission of God through North Roanoke. If there's any other need, any other concern that needs to be brought before you, I pray, God, in this room at this time and online that you would give liberty to your people and those who are yet to be your people to respond to your grace as the Spirit moves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.